Good morning. Let's open in our Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 29. We're still in our Old Testament character studies, and we're up to Hezekiah. We're getting toward the end of the historical books of the Old Testament here. Judah is about to be taken captive. Assyria already has, uh, pardon me, the, um, the northern kingdom, Israel, already has been uh, conquered, taken captive, and resettled. Hezekiah. As we've said many times, when we look at the people in the Old Testament, there's good and bad, just like us. Um, and there are some recorded mistakes in the part of Hezekiah, but overall, God's summary of this man is uh, something any of us would like to have been said about us. So, uh, to set the... Uh, the pace force, just hold your place there and turn back to Second Kings 18, and you'll see what God has to say about this godly man. <clears throat> Second Kings 18. And verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him, among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. How's that? That's pretty good, huh? Uh, which being translated means he was the best. Okay? Verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Then the other uh, summary is in Second Chronicles, now back to chapter 29. <clears throat> verses 1 and 2 hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in jerusalem his mother's name was abijah the daughter of zechariah and he did what was right in the sight of the lord according to all that his father had done and that's not all now turn over to chapter 31 because god is not finished chapter 31 and verse 20 Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment, to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. So he prospered. So that's the kind of guy we're going to be looking at this morning. So uh, we're going to have an example to follow this time. <clears throat> If you're, any, if you're familiar with Hezekiah at all, you know that probably the big word associated with his reign is revival. Revival. Probably the greatest revival in the history of the two kingdoms between the breakup of uh, Israel to the final captivity. So that's what we're going to look at. In fact, we're going to look at the pattern of revival. There are four stages or steps in the pattern of revival, and we see it here. Uh, in the revival under hezekiah revival in this case of a nation it can happen uh corporately or even uh, across a, a whole church uh, i mean uh, a country scotland korea even here in the united states back in the uh, early 1800s we've seen wonderful revivals where the spirit of god has just swept through his people and marvelous things have happened or it can be individual. We can individually experience revival. 
So let's see the pattern here and to see what we can learn from it. <clears throat> so let's start reading in uh, chapter 29. We've already read verses 1 and 2, so let's pick up in verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see, with your eyes he's talking about the assyrians they've already invaded the northern kingdom taken it and now they're down in the southern kingdom causing trouble in judah <clears throat> for indeed because of this our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons our daughters and our wives are in captivity now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the lord god of israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us my sons do not be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Then these Levites arose. Mahath, the son of Amasai, and Joel, the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites, of the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehalalel, of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zimah, and Eden, the son of Joah. Now, you may wonder why God puts in long lists of names like this. There's always a little twist or quirk that you should look for. In this case, did you notice? Joah, the son of Zimah, and Eden, the son of Joah. That's a father and son. Isn't that great? Two generations of godly men. <clears throat> of the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri and Jeriel, of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, of the sons of Heman, Jehiel and Shimel, and of the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah and Uziel. And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days and on the sixteenth day of the first month they finished. Then they went into King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings with all its articles and the table of the showbread with all its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified, and they are there they are before the altar of the Lord. What a scene, huh? Can you imagine walking into the temple of, of, of God here at this point and seeing the mess? Uh, just look back over 
in uh, chapter 28 at verse 24 you'll see why we're in such a mess here ahaz was not a good guy he was a he was a wicked king and in verse 24 it says so ahaz gathered the articles of the house of god cut in pieces the articles of the house of god shut up the doors of the house of the lord and made for himself altars in every corner of jerusalem isn't that incredible so you can imagine what a mess it was coming into the the temple um for example it says they cut up the articles why would they do that well uh for example the ark of the covenant is made basically of what no it's not made of gold. that's right it's wood acacia wood and then it's overlaid with gold <clears throat> well they use some of this to pay tribute to their their conquerors melted down the rest and who knows what they did with it but the point is they, they don't want the ark that's that's a useless piece of furniture now so what they would do they would peel off the, the the gold covering break it up if they have to to get it off and then the wood's no good you know just leave it there in pieces and so on with uh much of the other uh implements that were wood-based covered with gold they just strip off the the gold leaf maybe melt it down and so you'd have all this debris laying everywhere they'd take the the gold and silver uh instruments bowls and, and ladles and so on of course they'd leave behind the bronze and the wood and so on so you can imagine what a mess uh, the temple was in. So here's the first step in revival. Cleansing. Cleansing. It starts there. A big cleanup operation. And uh, there's a real parallel here. Because uh, just as uh, the temple had fallen into a state of decay, uh, we as pr- Christians can accumulate debris can't we you know over the years um we can uh, develop a grievance and we don't settle it you know unconfessed sin uh maybe uh possessions relationships habits it's a slow build-up like rust in the pipes you know you don't notice it's kind of gradual but after a while that flow starts getting smaller and smaller until finally it completely stops and we wonder why we don't hear God and he doesn't hear us. Like the, like the temple, the doors are shut and the place is littered with dust and debris. We, it, it's really interesting. It's wonderful to see young believers, isn't it? They're excited for God and we have that tender conscience, you know? As soon as sin comes in, we just, we can't stand it until we've dealt with it. But then too often, I think, as we get older in the Lord, that uh, that tenderness gets a little harder and the debris begins to accumulate we uh <clears throat> went to a concert last night at a uh, i won't say what the denomination was but it was a particular <clears throat> kind of a church <clears throat> and they had the uh knee pads folding knee pads out in front of the pews you know to kneel on to pray every every sunday i, uh, I actually attended a meeting of an of another church up in oakland when i was in the intern program to study this other religion it's very interesting uh the first thing we did was to get down on our knees had these little cushions in fr- under the pew in front of you pulled it out you knelt down on it and there was uh just a crying out a, a pleading with god to forgive our sins and you could tell from the the nature of it it, it was uh a system based on works and it was crying out to god hoping you know against hope that he might hear 
the, the plea. <clears throat> Praise God, it's not really like that, huh? You know? But I think sometimes <clears throat> we see things like that and, and, you know, praise God, we know we're saved by grace and we become a little smug. We know better. And I think sometimes we, we err the other direction. You know, uh, hey, I'm saved by grace. Praise the Lord. And we just stop confessing sin. You know, hey, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord. You know, we should be wearing out first John one nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's addressed to believers. And it's not meant just to be used during the first year of salvation. (laughs) All the time. So, the debris can accumulate. I I think I told a story once already about uh, the work we did for my wife a few years ago. She wanted a garden. And uh, where we live, we have adobe you know clay you ever dug in it and the weather was just like this it was raining and on top of that we have two sycamore trees the average diameter of a root is about like that and they're they're thicker than the mud i mean there's more root than there is mud and so it took us two days to dig out a trench that was two feet deep two feet wide and about 15 feet long uh but i remember at kind of a halfway point standing there and uh, looking down at our work and the rain was coming down and we were all just covered with adobe and uh, I remember thinking boy the ground's a lot farther down than it usually is and I looked on my boots and I had about that much adobe <laughs> on the bottom of my my boots well sins like that you know it can kind of get caked up after a little while you know and it becomes time for a little little cleansing <clears throat> Personal cleanup can include confession, repentance of sin, getting right with a brother or sister, forsaking of a habit, discarding an object, severing a relationship, anything that has crept in that interferes with our relationship with the Lord. And God wants us to clean it up. I love uh, the way Paul put it. It's a great, great memory verse. Here, this is the old King James. Herein do I exercise myself, he says. I like exercise, you know, like Nautilus, you know, the gym. Herein do I exercise myself. I make a lot of effort in this area to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Isn't that good? Paul says, I make an effort. Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Constant cleanup. No mud accumulating. That's good. so finally here we are in verse 18 then they went into king hezekiah we have cleansed all the house of the lord the altar of burnt offerings with all its articles and the table of the showbread with all its articles moreover all the articles which king ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression we have prepared and sanctified and there they are before the altar of the lord what a sight at last huh wouldn't it boy that'd be nice after seeing the mess all cleansed, all shiny and new, uh, all the articles restored, rebuilt, put in their place, ready for service, just the way God wants us, nice and clean and squeaky clean and shiny, ready for his service. Okay, second step then. It's not until the place had been cleaned up 
that uh, the Israelites are now ready for worship. And that's the next step, worship and service. So picking up here in verse 20. Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary and for Judah. Then he commanded the priest, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bulls and the priest received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests killed them, and they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priest with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped. The singers sang and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering... The king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worship. After the cleansing, now we can worship. And uh, then, of course, they've just begun the service for the Lord. So service begins at this point. Um, we can't, we don't have time to read all of this down at verse 36. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place. So suddenly it's interesting, uh, there that they thanked God for preparing the people. That's one of the marks of, of revival. It starts with God. It's a movement of God in the hearts of his people. And it's often sudden like this. He, he, uh, he gets hold of his people, and uh, suddenly there's a great revival. Okay, well, that's, that's the way it happens, not just in the nation of Israel, but it should be in our lives as well. Cleansing, and then worship, and service. And then the third step, which we're used to thinking of in the case of a revival, is great blessing. Chapter 30, verse uh, 1. And Hezekiah sent to all uh, Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. What's unusual about that? Do you know? Yeah, it's the northern kingdom. Remember, that they, they typically have not been on speaking terms since Jeroboam and Rehoboam. It's been Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. Two separate countries. And there's no coming and going. This is, inc- this is incredible. It's the mark of a true revival. Uh, and we're going to see the word goes out all over uh, Israel as well as Judah. And they respond by coming, verse uh, 
uh, 11, for example, nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Wow. These guys are coming from the northern kingdom. Up until now, they were enemies. Uh, but there's such a revival now that it's actually affecting uh, the Jews up in uh, Israel. Verse 12, and also the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Notice again, there's the work of God in the hearts of his people. Okay. So, uh, great blessing. You, uh, there's a, another mark of the blessing here, and that's in the area of giving, interestingly enough. Uh, look over in chapter 31 and verse uh, 4. This is Hezekiah. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites, that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah, who dwelt in the cities of Judah, brought the tithe of oxen and sheep, also the tithe of holy things, which were consecrated to the Lord their God, they laid in heaps. In the third month, they began laying them in heaps. And they finished in the seventh month. Four months of making heaps. <clears throat> and when Hezekiah and the leaders came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zadok, answered him and said, Since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and have plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people, and what is left is this, great abundance. And so, if you read on, Hezekiah says, okay, well, we've got to put this stuff somewhere. So they filled the, the extra rooms in the temple with the surplus. The giving was so great. So, great blessing from God. Picture it. All those rooms that had had the debris and the dust and the big mess in it, now it's filled with the uh, gifts and the offerings of the people of god that's the way he wants it and just as their their hearts had been filled with sin and idolatry now they were filled with the love and the worship of god okay fourth step is uh chapter 32 <clears throat> verse one it's a test of faith 32 verse one after these deeds of faithfulness Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And you're sitting there going, what? Is this revival? I mean, what's going on here? Everything was going so great. Why did God ruin the party? And yet, really, uh, this a trial is just as necessary to the work of God as all the other aspects are. It's just the part that we don't like to see so much. But it's, it's so essential. Deeds of faithfulness, and it's rewarded with a great, by the way, powerful ruler, a godless man coming and uh, ready to attack them. It's essential because 
This is how God makes himself known through trial. God is not just for praise behind closed doors. And it's great to come together and praise the Lord and pray and have fellowship. But uh, God wanted more than just Israel and Judah getting together and, and singing songs and blowing trumpets. God has a bigger program than that. <laughs> he wants to be known to the world. And so uh, somehow he wants to get the word out that I am God. You know, here I am. And so he's going to use this great trial uh, in the life of Hezekiah and all his people to reveal himself, not just to them, but to all the nations around. Um, God is not just for personal use, okay? He wants us to make use of him and may put him to work. I mean that reverently. There's a wonderful verse in Malachi. In fact, it's so wonderful, we're going to look at it. Malachi chapter 3. And there are two words there that I just love. See if you can figure out what they are. Malachi 3.10. Last book of the Bible. If you've gone to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone too far. Old Testament. End of the Old Testament. Verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. God's like that, you know. You can't outgive him. You know what the two words are? Very good. That's exactly right. Try me. I love that. God says... Put me to the test. That's what he wants. He's not, he's not afraid to be leaned on. <laughs> he wants to demonstrate who he is and what he can do. And that's what he's saying there. Try me, he says. Just come on. Reminds me, uh, you know, you ever go into a store and there's a tool or a toy or something and it's got a little thing on it, try me. Ever seen that? Well, that's what he's saying. It's an open invitation to us as his people. Come on, try me. It's almost a challenge, you know. He, he rebukes us later in the New Testament. You have not because you ask not. It's not because I can't do it. You haven't tried me. Put me to the test. Now, let's be very clear about this. People uh, hear the words, try me, and they think, well, it means like kind of sampling God. You know, try me. One of the worst bumper stickers that I've seen uh, that Christians can put on. I hope nobody has one. Have you tried Jesus? You think about what that's saying. It's, it's saying, um, you know, in your, in your journey through life, you're going to sample different things, you know, and, and see what you think of them. Why don't you try Jesus sometime, you know? That, that's really what it's saying. Have you tried Jesus? And it's, it's misleading people because it sounds like kind of a, uh, you know, a sampling, uh, you know, I can take him or leave him, you know. Jesus doesn't say it that way, okay? If you're here and you don't know the Lord, let me be plain about it. You don't try Jesus that way, okay? It's a lifetime thing. It's a once commitment that lasts for your life or nothing at all. That's it. Now, if you're sitting here saying, oh, man, I don't think... I 
I couldn't last. You know, I don't think I can do it. Don't worry about it. Because he's the one that keeps you. That's the neat thing about it. All he wants you to do is come as a helpless sinner. Say, Lord, there's nothing I can do to save myself. I know I deserve hell, but I trust that you, you did it all to save my soul. So here I am. I'm just putting myself in your hands. Take me. I'm yours. And the neat thing is, he never lets you go. So, you know, you don't try Jesus. Uh, if you come to him, lock, stock, and barrel, he'll never let you go. It's a permanent relationship. And I don't mean just in this lifetime, forever. What does he say uh, all over the Gospels? I give them eternal life, you know, forever. No. Here, try me is like the stuff on the tools. See how it works. So he's saying, watch how I work. Come on, give me a chance. I love it. And so with that thing, that's what trials are. Okay, trials. Okay, well, he's trying us, but at the same time, he wants us to try him. Put him to the test. Uh, let's read this section now about Sennacherib, because there's some interesting things here, particularly when um, uh, Sennacherib, Sennacherib's rep, representative, does talk. He's called Rabshakeh in, uh, in uh, Second Kings. That's not his name, that's his title. So we saw Sennacherib comes along and he's threatening Jerusalem. Uh, verse 2, And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, and built another wall outside. Also, he repaired the milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. Then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers, by the way. For there are more with us than with him. That's an unfortunate translation. Whenever you see italicized words in your Bible, they're not in the original. It sounds like it's saying, for there are, in other words, we have more people than he does. If you look at it, what he said is, for more with us than with him. We have more. Not numbers. We have more because we have the Lord. In fact, he goes on to say that. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Looks good at this point. People are confident, trusting in the Lord. Hezekiah is leading them. <clears throat> Let's see what happens. Verse 9. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem, but he and all the forces with him laid siege at, against Lachish, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars 
and commanded Judah in Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Furthermore, his servant spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and trouble them that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. Now because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. Then the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others and guided them on every side. This is an incredible miracle, by the way. The, the number of uh, fatalities in the army of the Assyrians was 185,000 in one night. There's never been a human battle, human against human, where anything like that is, has happened in, in one day. A couple of things to uh, notice about this, this trial, uh, as we're calling it. Note uh, Rab, the Rab Shaker's ignorance. That's, that's the guy who's speaking here uh, about the Lord. Did you notice this in verse um, 12? <clears throat> he says, has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah in Jerusalem saying, you shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? They had uh, just removed all of the idolatrous altars and images throughout the land because of the revival. And the Assyrians uh, unfortunately thought that it was these these places out there these idolatrous places were to worship the lord do you understand yes and that's that's really sad i mean they're ignorant they think that these idolatrous places are for worshiping jehovah they don't know any better and there's a lesson from this because um the rabshakeh's ignorance really is caused by the behavior of the jews isn't it i mean They've been there for years, by the way. The Assyrians came in a long time ago, conquered Israel, and now they've been filtering down into Judah. They've even taken some cities. In fact, they know Hebrew, okay? They did, they did it to scare the people. They 
spoke Hebrew to the people on the wall. They're very familiar with the Jews and their traditions and their religion. And having been there, they've been seeing them for years go up to these idolatrous locations and worship. And so, you know, the Jews say, well, their God is Jehovah. Oh, they're worshiping Jehovah there. And it's really sad because, uh, number one, there are idols up in these places. And so they see the Jews going up and worshiping these idols. And they say, oh, those must be Jehovah, you know. Uh, and as, as well as the uh, terrible practices that would be associated with the worship of these idols. The point is, the Assyrians had their impression of the Hebrew God from the behavior of the people. And the behavior of the people was misleading them as to who God really is and what he's like. Because when they saw them going up to these high places and worshiping, they came to the conclusion, oh, okay, yeah, they're gods just like all the other gods we've seen, just like our God as well, you know. They, you carve an image and you put it up on a hill and you go up and do all these crazy things. So uh, the reason I point that out is we have to be careful that we don't send the wrong message about God in our lives. Because if you think about it, the main, uh, one of the main ways people in the world learn about God is by watching Christians and seeing how they behave. And you don't think they study us, don't they? You know, they're quick to criticize and boy, are they ever quick to notice when a Christian blows it, you know, and it reflects on God. Often our behavior can send the wrong message about God to the world, just like the Jews. When we who claim to know the Lord act and behave exactly like those around us who have no God, we prove to them that God is no more real than the wooden stone idols in the Old Testament. Right? You know? Hey, their God is just like mine, and I don't have one. There's no difference. So it's no wonder <clears throat> that uh, his taunt was, look, your God's no different from the gods around that we've already conquered. He, he, he's, he's impotent like the rest of them. Look at verse 14, 15, and 17 again. He repeats this phrase three times. Uh, at the end of verse 14, uh, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. He says, forget it. He's not going to be able to deliver you. Verse 15, um, no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? And then again in the letter in verse 17, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. That's the taunt. And he's basing it on their lives, on what he's observed. So, God wants to reveal himself, not just to us, but to people like this and set them straight, that he is the Lord. And it's wonderful if you look at Hezekiah's prayer I'll just read it to you from 2 Kings because it's right on target. Listen to what he says in response to this. O Lord, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. 
and to hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Isn't that good? Man, uh, he's not saying, oh, help us. You know, we're about to get killed, Lord. Don't you see? His concern is the name of God. And that uh, not just the Jews, but everyone know that the Lord is God and him alone. Not surprisingly, God answered that prayer because that was God's heart. That's what God had in mind all along. So this is the natural result of revival. It's wonderful to worship God and to serve him as believers and, and live healthy spiritual lives. But God has bigger views than that. He wants the world to know who he is. And he often uses trials to do that. So trials, look upon them that way. They're opportunities for God to reveal himself. Whether through a miracle like this or through our unshakable trust in him. Either way, we can show uh, the world who God really is. Trials are just as much a part of the normal Christian life as confession and cleansing, worship and service and blessing. In fact, they're necessary to demonstrate to the world the true greatness and goodness of the living God. And he sure uh, demonstrated it here in a great way. Okay, well, we can certainly learn a lot of lessons from the life of Hezekiah, the, the steps of revival. And uh, maybe there's a life or two here that's kind of like the temple at the beginning there with dust and debris and broken furniture in it and the doors are shut. And it's time to clean out that mess and open the doors again. Remember what God said about him. And every work that he began, he did it with his whole heart. And so he prospered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this marvelous example of the life of Hezekiah. And Lord, as we often sing in the hymn, Lord, start a revival and start it in my life. Lord, if uh, there's anyone here with dust and debris uh, in the corners and in the rooms of their heart, Lord, may you touch them, touch me, that the rooms might be cleansed, that the Holy Spirit might have free reign in our lives. And uh, we might replace them with the blessings of God. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.